The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. I was born and raised in the church. From the time I was in a crib, I, I, I don't remember a time where I wasn't in church. My parents would go to Bible studies and take me along, and I just that's all I knew. Week by week, day by day was church or Bible study or something like that. And I was baptized at eight years old, and uh, I don't, I would never have said before I was baptized, well, there was a time where I wasn't a Christian. I didn't believe. I just, I just always believed. And there was a moment at eight years old when I said, it's time to be baptized. And, and so I, I did that. But what I, I've come to see even over, even more recently, sadly enough, is that so much of my life and my belief in the gospel is driven off performance. How good or how bad am I doing today? And in my head, there's, there's this picture sometimes that I struggle with. This picture of, of God scowling with a list of demands, checkboxes, that I either have or have not met. They say things like, quiet time. Or they say things like, prayer time. Or, not yelling at the kids. Or something along those lines, and, and as many as the boxes that aren't checked is, determines whether he is pleased with me or not. And, and believe it or not, becoming a pastor doesn't make that easier. <laughs> it only makes that worse. And the voices in your head grow louder, actually. And so then the Christian life, as sometimes I think about it, just becomes one constant work after another. How can I check the box today? How can I make God happy with me today? It makes the life of a Christian difficult and laborious and draining. As much as I don't want to set myself up for failure this morning, I cannot emphasize enough how important these 17 words are for you after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I cannot emphasize enough how, how important those 17 words are for you and for me. There are few verses in Scripture that boil down the essence of the Gospel like that one. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. We have systematic theology books 
that are filled to the brim with great things about God. Deep concepts that we need to know. And so many of these concepts in these vast systematic theology textbooks can be traced back to these 17 words right here. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. One of the worst things that I can do as a preacher is oversell the sermon. But what I'm trying to say to you is this. Brothers and sisters, if you can wrap your mind around the truth that is contained in these words, and if you can actually truly receive these words by faith, you will have so much freedom and so much joy in the Christian life that your heart will explode. Especially if you're like me, where you struggle over this idea of performance and this idea that God is waiting for you to make Him happy. So what I want us to do this morning is really make a very concerted effort to apply our minds to the time that we have to this text so that we can see what's held here in these words. It's important every time we study the Bible or every time we read the Word of God to keep the context right in front of us because it helps us to understand what the text means. Remember, we haven't left this opening argument that the author of Hebrews has been making since the beginning. He said that it's God who has spoken to us in these last days by His Son. Now, formerly, he says, in the Old Testament, in the days under the Old Covenant, He spoke to us by the prophets. And along with those prophets, He spoke to us, He says, at many times and in many ways, which probably means something like the miraculous signs and works which He demonstrated through the prophets, His power and His majesty. But now in these last days, which keeping score at home has been something of 2,000 years, He has revealed Himself by His Son. And what He goes on to do for pretty much the rest of the book of Hebrews is to explain why the eternal Son of God, whom we know as Jesus of Nazareth, is better than any revelation of God we could ever receive by any other means possible. Which means that if you devote your entire life to understanding the Son, it still won't be enough. So at first, he deals with the Son's cosmic significance. His bigness, His vastness, His grandness. The Son, he says, is heir of all things. Second, he says the, the world was created through the Son. Third, he says the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. Fourth, the Son is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Fifth, the Son upholds the universe by the word of His power. So you see there's this cosmic significance to the Son. He is other. He is out there. He is distant. God has revealed Himself through the Son. And you can see why, can't you? When you see the grandness 
of the Son, the vastness of the Son. The world was created through Him. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. All of those big and amazing things you see by the Son is better than the prophets. The prophets merely carried the mail of God to you to tell you about these things. But the Son is the letter writer and He showed up at your door. So He's better than the prophets. But now, and and nearly for the rest of the letter, really, He's going to spend a good deal of time not merely looking at the cosmic significance of the Son. We haven't left that and we're never going to. But now, getting down to His practical significance. To you. What is the Son's significance to you when this inconceivably vast God came down to us in human form? What impact does it have on you, the Christian? And he answers that with these 17 words. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What significance does the Son have to you? Well, first, the Son is your high priest. The Son is your high priest. This is what the author means when he says that the Son made purification for sins. He's referring to the Son's role as high priest, whose biggest responsibility as high priest, was to go before the Lord on behalf of the nation of Israel and offer a sacrifice of purification for sins on the Day of Atonement. And you can read about that in all of its details in Leviticus chapter 16. And I'm going to walk through some of that with you this morning. The Day of Atonement, or perhaps if you have an iPhone or you've got a little calendar on your wall or something like that, you may see it labeled on there as Yom Kippur is one of the most significant days on the Jewish calendar. It's supposed to be celebrated, according to Leviticus 16.29, on the seventh month and on the tenth day of the month, which normally in the Jewish calendar means that it's sometime in late September or early October. And on this day, a number of animals, a bull, a ram, a couple of goats, were supposed to be sacrificed back when they had a tabernacle or a temple after it. The priest was essentially supposed to put on his holy garments. And he was specifically told that put these garments on, but you're not to come into the holy place. Specifically, the place inside the holy place, typically known as the most holy place or the holy of holies, which is behind the curtain. That's where the Ark of the Covenant sat. That's where the mercy seat sits. That's where God's presence specially dwelt inside the tabernacle. Now, why could He not come behind the veil? Well, it's important that you see why in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. You hear that? Just leave that passage up for just a second. Aaron is not to go behind the veil. 
And the reason is because there behind the veil is the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. And you see that in the passage that, that four there, four I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. God is saying, I'm going to be there. I'm going to come down and I am going to cause my presence to dwell there on top of the mercy seat in a cloud. And if Aaron comes back there behind the curtain, he's going to die. Although Aaron is high priest, he's also a man. And that's a problem. Because as a man, he has sin. Sin that must be atoned for before he can go back there and make atonement for the rest of the nation. So he has a problem before he deals with the nation's problem. And the problems that they share are the same. They both are sinful. So he has to be atoned for before he can make atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel. So the stakes could not be higher. Aaron's life is on the line. You must follow these instructions carefully. You can imagine the fear and trembling that must overwhelm him at that moment when he receives these instructions and he knows what he has to do, especially the first time that he has to face it. Maybe every time he did this. Sweat pouring down his face as he's thinking through step by step every instruction that God gave him. No doubt having rehearsed it a number of times in a safe environment so that he doesn't make a mistake. So what must Aaron do? Well, he tells us in Leviticus 16, verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. Okay, he's going behind the veil now. And put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and on the east side and in front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So before Aaron can even make atonement for the nations, he first has to kill a bull outside in front of the veil and carry all of that behind the veil. He has to atone for his own sin and the sin of his own household first this is so that he doesn't bear the sins that he has committed from the previous year before the Lord, lest the Lord, who is holy, kill him for these sins. Then and only then, after he has done that, can he make an offering for the sins of the people. And so, Aaron had, after he does this, two goats for the people. The first is in verse 15. He says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring, it, bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood 
as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So first, the first goat who drew the short straw. I don't know if it's the short straw after you find out what happens to the second one. I don't know. But the one goat dies, and he takes it behind the veil, and he does the same thing that he did with the bull for himself and for his household, this time for the sins of the people. He sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat before and beside. Then he goes to the second goat in 21 and 22, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This is where we get the idea of a scapegoat. That's what this goat is, is a scapegoat, literally. They put all the sins of the people of Israel, they confess it, put it on the head of this goat, and someone, uh, uh, the man who drew the short straw, has to lead this goat out of town and ensure that by no means does it ever come back into the camp. So the second goat is a scapegoat. One on this goat has confessed all the sins. He's led out of town, takes him out, and the, and the high priest who performs all the sacrifices then has to take his, the clothes that he wore and lay them aside. He has to bathe. The man who took the goat out into the wilderness has to ditch all of his clothes and burn them before he ever comes back into town, put on uh, good clothes, ritually bathe before he does that, before he can ever enter the camp again. Now... Every year, once a year, the priest, as a representative of the entire nation, would go before the Lord and perform these ritual sacrifices to atone both for his sins and his household sins of the past year and for the sins of the nation for the previous year. Every year, going through this same ritual. But understand, this process is only a stopgap. It's only temporary. It's not permanent. In fact, the author of Hebrews is going to tell us in chapter 9, verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls sanctify for the purification of the flesh. You understand? This is not an internal sanctification that's happening here. This is not an internal cleansing that's happening here. This is a fleshly cleansing. That's the reason they would even clean the walls of the tabernacle itself. The place where the mercy seat was because it too was tainted by earthiness. All of it was just fleshly. It was outward. It wasn't internal. So this whole process is an outward cleansing. It's only a temporary remedy to keep God's people alive as they met with Him. And they didn't all meet with Him. It was just the one guy. This is what they had to do in order for the one guy to actually meet with the Lord. It did nothing for the souls of the people. It was only an external cleansing. But there was an even bigger problem with this remedy. 
The author of Hebrews also tells us in chapter 10, verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Uh-oh. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? Because this is the only remedy we have to take away sins. And now you're telling me it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He tells us another few verses later in chapter 10, verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So the priest is standing there daily, having to do similar rituals for the purpose of removal of sin, whether it's guilt offerings or all kinds of other offerings, in addition to sin offerings once a year. And yet it doesn't take away sins. As long as the Day of Atonement has been with us, these are merely only ever external cleansings of sin. They have no actual lasting ability to purify the sinner's soul from sin. But all of that is long ago, in many times and in many ways, when God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. What has happened now that the Son has come? What happens now that the Son has made purification for sins? I want you to notice something that's already different in our passage. You see in the passage, take your eyes and put them squarely on the text because you need to see this. Don't look at me. Look at the Bible that's sitting in front of you. He says, after making purification for sins. After making purification for sins. Some translations, like the New American Standard, if you've got that, will say, when He had made purification for sins. This tells us something that's different about the Son's sacrifice than what we read already. Said so the priest stands daily offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. But it says of the Son, He had made. It happened once, and it's done. After making. It happened once, and it's done. Now He's going to tell us what made the Son's purification different than the regular old priest in the Old Testament. And it comes in chapters 9 and 10, which I realize is like four or five years down the road from where we are right now. I get that. So I'm going to spoil the surprise knowing that all of us are going to forget by the time we get there. Okay? He says in chapter 9, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as high priest, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is the one in heaven, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then He says in 10 verse 14, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What made the Son and His work greater when the Son became your priest, He made one sacrifice 
and that was himself. And when he offered his own blood as a sacrifice for the sins of those who are being sanctified, he perfected them. He secured, he says, an eternal redemption. Now what significance then does the Son have to you? Well, first, the Son is your high priest. But second, don't miss this, the Son's work is finished. Tattoo this on the inside of your eyelids so that you can even see it when you close your eyes. The Son's work is finished. Look at this next phrase in our verse this morning. In verse 3, He says, After making purification for sins, what does it say? He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. What does it mean that He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high? Well, God is spirit. He doesn't have a right hand. Not literally, of course. He's omnipresent. He doesn't literally sit on a throne. He can't be contained by a throne. These are metaphors. And they're meant to tell you something more than simply where Jesus is located geographically this morning. What is He telling you? He's contrasting the Son's work with the work of the ordinary priest under the Old Covenant. The Son's work of redeeming His people as is completed. But you remember what He said about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the regular old priests? He said every priest stands daily at His service. And why does He stand? Because He's offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But that's not what the Son did. The Son, He says, sat at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Once the Son, as your High Priest, made purification for your sins and for my sins, He sat down. He rested. Meaning His work was accomplished he doesn't have to do anything else. Why is it that the Son can make one offering? He can take away our sin, and then He can sit down at the right hand of the Father. Why is it that He can accomplish this work that way? How can the Son do that? I want you to imagine... For just a moment, the thought experiment. So just play with me for a second. Imagine that Adam and Eve had never sinned. Imagine what your life would be like right now if Adam and Eve had never sinned. Let's, let's also, let's take it a step further and let's say none of their children had sinned either. They told that snake to go away and he went. He never came back. Generation after generation, every son and daughter of Adam and Eve, none of them sin. All are living at peace 
with God without sin. Just imagine that world for just a second. I realize it's a stretch, but just imagine. What good thing that God has would He have withheld from Adam and Eve and all their children if that was the case? What good thing that God has would He have withheld from them? Would He have ever hid His face from them? No. Would there ever be a point where you as a son or daughter of Adam and Eve would have ever asked God or talked to God in in any way and He wouldn't have been there to hear you, to walk with you, to be beside you? The world would be ours. There's nothing that God would have withheld from any of His children had sin not entered the world. We live in perfect harmony with our Creator. All the riches promised to us in what we now know as the new creation, they would all be ours now, right now. We would be living in it. Because sin never entered our hearts. Our reward for perfect obedience would have been all that God has created would be our inheritance. It would be ours. What a glorious existence that would be. That didn't happen. Now imagine, let's extend this just a little bit further, just play with me for a second. Imagine that sin had entered the world, but just as a thought experiment, imagine it was possible for a leader like Moses or maybe David, let's say, to just be rid of sin. To get rid of sin in his life. It was, it was all gone. It was expunged. Totally gotten rid of. And he never sinned again. The Lord said, David, I want your heart focused solely on me forever. And David said, okay. And it was done. He was there with God forever. Trusted in the Lord fully. All of his sins were forgiven. And he never lost faith. And now imagine that he also led the entire nation of Israel to do the exact same thing. All of them, sins expunged, sins forgiven, totally faithful, never idolatrous, always focused, 100%, totally on the Lord, never to sin again. Which of God's promises that he had made to Israel would he have withheld if they would have been able to do that? None. We know our Bibles? None. The land? It would be theirs. The nations? They would have all been streaming into the kingdom of Israel, paying homage to King David, laying their tribute at his feet, coming to worship his God. Wealth? Yes. Blessing? Yes. Harvest? Plentiful. They would never have been in want. Now, that's a thought experiment, because if you're like me, you're thinking, well, that's a big if. If David would have been rid of sin, if he would have lived righteously. Okay, now Jesus comes along. Jesus, as the new and better David, born of Abraham, of the line of David, born of a virgin, without being guilty from birth, under Adam. What does Jesus then do? He lives a perfect life, a sinless life, a life filled with a hundred percent submission to God's will. He's a new Adam who's never sinned. Now, because of Christ's righteousness, 
What has he earned? From birth to death, he never disobeys God, not one time. Not ever wavered in his faith, totally and 100% submissive to God because of the life he lived. What has he earned? What would God withhold from him? What riches would God say, mm, I'm going to keep that one back for myself? What is his life worth? If your answer is, well, he has everything. And his life is worth everything. If you're saying all of God's promises are a yes in Christ. They're all given to him. Everything God has promised to any man ever belongs to Christ. In fact, here's how holy he is. He could enter into the holy place. He could enter behind the veil. He could place his lips on the mercy seat and could turn around and walk out. He wouldn't have to put on special garments. He wouldn't have to kill a bull. He wouldn't have to kill any goats or anything like that. He wouldn't have to take any blood back there. He could just walk in and walk out. And if that's what you're thinking, then you'd be right. That's exactly what he earned. But you see, this is where things take a turn. Okay, in the story. Because instead of taking what is rightfully his, he took his life of perfect obedience and infinite worth and provided it as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. So the author of Hebrews tells us in 9, 12, and 14, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of, bulls, uh, blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing the eternal redemption. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What is he saying? His spotless sacrifice paid once for all your sins. But here's where it takes another turn. On the third day, God raised him up from the grave. Why? Why did he rise from the grave? Because having paid fully for the sins of his people, it was now not possible for death, which was the penalty for sin to begin with, to hold him. This is what Peter says in Acts 2.24. It was not possible for death to hold him any longer once he had paid fully for the sins of his people. So at the resurrection, what we see when Jesus gets up from the grave is that the check that Jesus wrote with his atoning sacrifice cleared the bank. So now, because he paid for the sins of his people, anyone that is a follower of Christ now shares in all of those righteous rewards that totally are 100% by His grace as a gift to you. Why? Because your sin is atoned for. 
There's no more sin for which God would say, this is mine and I can't share it with you. Just as he shared them with Christ, Christ, through his atoning work, shares them with us. So then why does he sit down after making purification for sin? Because to quote Jesus, it is finished. This means that all of your sins are finished. Purification has already been made by Jesus on the cross for a hundred percent of any sin that you have ever committed, are committing right at this moment, or will ever commit in the future. So if you're thinking to yourself, well, wouldn't that mean that then I could just go out and commit any sin that I wanted to from here on out, and it would be at no cost since it was already paid for. Now, there is a lot to say about that, but if you're starting to make that connection, then you're beginning to grasp how big these 17 words are. That's what he's saying. That every sin you could possibly ever commit in the future has already been paid for. It's already dead and gone. It's already been thrown away. Can you sense the magnitude of those 17 words? After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's gone. All of it is gone. Now the irony of it all is that once Christ sanctified us, He then opens our eyes by His Spirit in time and space and gives us a gift of faith where we can actually believe in this and receive it as true and trust in it. So that even though we can walk out now in licentiousness and do whatever we want, the Spirit that He now puts within us causes us to grow steadily to not want to. Now the sin that I could avail myself of, I don't want to anymore. Because of the Spirit that He has caused to be within me. Now, I want to grow more to do what pleases Him. Not out of obligation, but out of desire. Genuine desire. For the God who sent His Son to die for me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So why is that important to you? Because, brothers and sisters, even though we have this tremendous gift of the Son making purification for all of our sins, 
and sitting at the right hand of God, we have a tendency in the Christian faith to live like that sweaty old priest who's still trying to carry our sacrifice behind the curtain. Still trying to make atonement for the sins that we've committed. Still trying to overcome the guilt that we feel. Now on the outside, we walk into church like, hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Good to see you. And on the inside, our soul is in torment, shielding itself, fearing that we might come in contact with the cloud over the mercy seat. And so our souls are shaking like leaves, thinking to ourselves, my devotional life isn't what it should be. I've failed in all these areas of my life. I look at my week and there's only one day where I didn't just scream at my kids. I'm a miserable parent. I'm a failure at life. How could God ever be satisfied with me? Before we know it, our relationship with God becomes one of obligation. It's one obligation after another. Because if I don't do this, or I don't do that, then the scowling God in the skies is going to look down on me and say, you, you didn't read your Bible? How dare you? You didn't go to church? The nerve. You didn't say your prayers? Put on those robes. Kill that bull. Sprinkle the blood, lest you die. But oh, how your life with Christ changes. Once you realize that He has already made purification for your sin. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and He made me alive. I was once far off, alienated from God. But now, by Christ's purification for my sin, I'm a member of his household. I'm his child. My prayers aren't a checkbox to him. It's his child coming to him with anxieties and cares that he wants to carry for them. My time in His Word. It's not His lecture out of displeasure with me. It's His Word of correction, of direction, of comfort, of peace. It's for my good. My time in church isn't an obligation but an opportunity to voice thanksgiving to Him for the wonderful gift of grace through the death of His Son and to be reminded of the joy of eternal life that awaits those who believe. Reminded Sunday by Sunday of that. 
But you understand that this is really, this passage, is a call to repentance. Because I fear we have thought too low of Christ. Perhaps you've thought of God's favor as depending on your work. You're thinking too low of Christ. Repent. Perhaps you have abused His grace by continuing to run, thinking that He could never forgive you. You're thinking too low of Christ who has already forgiven you. Repent. Perhaps you haven't believed in Christ because you think you can provide a sacrifice that's better before God than what Christ has. You're thinking too low of Christ and too low of God and too high of yourself. Repent and trust Christ. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There might not be 17 words worth remembering more than that. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The work that he has accomplished on your behalf is finished. We sing a song sometimes that I think is worth thinking about, even though the song we're going to sing here in a minute is different. So just bear with me. The song that we sometimes sing is called Come to Jesus, Rest in Him. And I want you to think about these words and what it's compelling you to do in light of this text. Are you weary? Heavy laden? Come and lay your burdens down. Jesus calls you. Jesus draws you. Rest in Him. He is gentle. He is lowly. He delights to bring us peace. Tender shepherd, mighty Savior, rest in Him. How sure His compassion for us Oh, how deep is His love. So come. Come to Jesus and rest in Him. Are you hopeless? Are you guilty? Caught in shame for all your sin? He pursues you to forgive you. Rest in Him. He has paid for every failure. Mercy flows in endless streams. Come and follow. Freedom calls you. Rest in Him. The days of striving for your own perfection are over. Because after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray. Pray that you would help me grasp this. Pray that you would help us as a church grasp this. 
how merciful we would be as Christians if we understood the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. What you have really done for us. How at peace we would be if we understood the magnitude of what the Son has done for us. What a gift you have given to us in Christ. Forgive us for thinking too lowly of him. Forgive us for not dwelling on this more. Help us to remember. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.